the message the Lord has given to me to share with you is no longer driven. No longer driven. Let's pray. Lord, as I come to speak your word, I ask that you would cleanse my lips. That you would come and lift up the cross. And that the blood of Jesus today would bring healing to our hearts. Exposing and uncovering everything of darkness. And binding up and healing that which is broken. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. No longer driven. When the children of Israel have gone through the barren wilderness, finally the time comes when the Lord God of heaven begins to speak about the blessings and the curses. These are found in Leviticus, the 26th chapter, and then again in Deuteronomy, the 28th chapter. Now, it's very clear in the scripture that there is a cause and effect between the blessing or the cursing of God. This cause and effect is sometimes difficult to understand. For example, we would look at Elisha and say, he died a sick man. Did that mean that God had rejected him and turned aside from him? Absolutely not. Some of the people asked Jesus, did this man sin or did his father sin? Jesus said, neither. It's for the glory of God. So what we're going to speak about is somewhat difficult to understand because the ways of God are deep and we have to search them out. But there's one thing that's very clear. Sin drives us and causes us to break relationships, causes us to become bitter and angry, causes us to be devastated and draw into our cave. Sin is so incredibly dark and no justification for sin can be found. If we could justify sin, it would no longer be sin. We could then blame somebody for it. We could say it's God's fault or it's somebody else's fault, but sin is not justifiable. It's darkness. So we find now God beginning to outline for the children of Israel in Leviticus 26 these awesome blessings. Verse 3, if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season and the ground will yield its crops and the trees of the field their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest and the grape harvest will continue until planting and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. Now, we're not farmers today. My dad was a farmer and my father-in-law was a farmer. And I can tell you through the years as I have called them on the telephone, they have now both passed, but as I would call them on the telephone, the first thing they would say to me is, Ray, how's the weather in Washington? Well, so what? Who cares about the weather in Washington? I've got an umbrella. But for dad, that meant everything. It meant he was going to be out in the weather. He was going to be planting the crop. He was going to be harvesting. It meant a great deal about whether the, the wheat was wet because it was raining, or if, if it was dry and ready to harvest. The Lord is promising them that he will work with them and not against them if they will obey his commands. Yeah. 
Some of you have very much a sense in your heart that God has been working against you. While some of you have been experiencing the joy of finding God working with you, for you, not against you. Well, he's telling the children of Israel, whether I work against you and am hostile to you, or whether I work for you and with you, is going to be largely dependent on what you do. He says in verse 6, I will grant peace in the land, and you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. I will remove savage beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies. They will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. The children of Israel, as they begin now to go in and take the land that we refer to as the Holy Land, or that set-apart land, they would go in and fight all day. They would count the troops that evening, and no one would have lost their lives, but they would have slain a whole nation. That was the power of God working for them and with them and not against them. I will look on you, verse 9, with favor, and make you fruitful and increase your numbers, and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move it out to make room for the new. Does that happen in your life? Do you have to move out last month's paycheck to make room for next month's? Or do you live paycheck to paycheck? The promise of God is that he will keep adding to you so that you aren't hungry and waiting for him to step in again, but always there's going to be an abundance in your life. And I'm shy of even speaking about that because of the lie of the prosperity church today. But the reality of God's covenant with the children of Israel was that he would always have an addition of blessing there and never an absence of what was necessary. There would not be this desperate wanting. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people." Verse 14, but if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring upon you sudden tear, wasting diseases and fever, that will destroy your sight and drain away your life. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. Or I could say it in modern terms, you'll make an investment and someone else will enjoy it. You'll think this is a fabulous business deal. You'll leap into it and you'll be left hanging. That's what he's saying. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. Now, turn with me to the last part of this. In verse 36, as for those of you who are left, I will make their hearts so fearful in the land of their enemies that the sound of a wind-blown leaf will put them to flight. They will run as though fleeing from the sword, and they will stumble even though no one is pursuing them. They will stumble over one another as though fleeing from the sword, 
even though no one is pursuing them. Verse 39, those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of their enemies because of their sins and also because of their father's sins. They will waste away. Now, we're getting a picture of a people who are being promised. If you will obey the covenant, if you will walk in this covenant relationship, I will be for you and I will be with you and you will not despair. On the other hand, if you break my covenant, you refuse to submit to me, then you're going to be driven. You're going to be driven by your sin. And you're going to live in terror. You're going to live in fear. A man that I've spent a great deal of time with who is not of this congregation, praying with him and talking with him, and repeatedly he has said to me, you know, Pastor, I'm just not sold out. And I've talked with him about this issue of finally breaking the sin that is in his life that he is hanging on to. The problem is he has a very high-paying position. His wife has a very high-paying position, and their lifestyle is very luxurious. And he recognizes that if he steps into this covenant relationship with God, He's going to cause some unhappiness in his family. And he may even cause some disaster in his job. And he's clinging to that financial security. And so he'll call me and he'll say, Pastor, can we get together? I feel so depressed. I'm so discouraged. And I'll say, yes, we can get together. And so I'll meet with him and we'll sit down. And of course, the first question I ask him is, have you sold out to Jesus yet? No, but pastor, I'm so discouraged. Well, do you want me to just comfort you in your discouragement and let you remain in your sin, or do you want to deal with your sin? It's your sin that's causing you to be discouraged. It's your sin that rises up in your heart and condemns you. And he'll say, well, pastor, I want to go to heaven and I want to follow Jesus. Then could we deal tonight with your sin? Well, pastor, I'm not ready to deal with that. This man's pastor recently called me. It was with his permission that I was working with him. And he said, I just wanted to let you know that our brother that you've been praying for, I've made an agreement to take him to a clinical psychologist because he is so depressed. He sits in the midst of the congregation and he has his head in his hands and he can't raise his head up and he's speaking about how unworthy he is to come into the presence of God. He said, has he dealt with his sin yet? No, he's too discouraged and he's too depressed. I think it's time we get him to a clinical psychologist. Well, I know what this man is being driven by. He's being driven by his lust for lifestyle and his refusal to deal with his sin. But he is so discouraged, he can barely function to continue making his job work. Some of you who come today, you have great distress in your heart. You have fear in your heart. You have great concerns in your heart, and you're weighed down. Some of you come discouraged and depressed. It's written all over your face. I have to ask you the question, are you willing to deal with your sin? Are you willing to allow God to remove this burden from your back so that you no longer are driven by it?
part of what I've discovered in this holiness walk is that it's much easier if we would simply make a list of do's and don'ts and let you check these off and say, okay, I'm doing all right. I've, I got it together now. But it's not that way. In the Spirit of God, we don't have a list that we have to walk in. We have the Holy Spirit we walk under. We listen to the Holy Spirit and we walk in obedience to the Holy Spirit's word to our hearts. But if in the walking we're discouraged and we're depressed and we're running in fear and we wake up and we say, oh, I have to tell you, for so long as the Lord began to deal with my heart, I would wake up in the morning and I was terrified to the point I could not even speak some mornings. But I want to tell you what was causing that fear. What was causing that fear was my concern that I somehow would not be able to manage my life because I was still managing my life. What my concern was that I would not know how to deal with my finances because the dollars were draining away and God was taking away the retirement. He was taking away the houses. He was taking away everything I had. And I was terrified by that. I was terrified because I didn't know how I could manage because I was still managing. I now wake up in the morning and there's such joy and such peace in my heart. Does that mean I have everything I think I want? No. But I don't manage it anymore. The Lord God of heaven manages it. I'm not in charge anymore. Jesus is in charge. You see, when we're driven by our sin or when we're driven by our father's sin. And we've learned these patterns of behavior. The crisis can be over, but we still continue to feel the same feelings. One dear woman, she drove a new Mercedes every year. She had incredible wealth. She confided to me her greatest fear. Her greatest fear was that she would end up a bag woman on the streets of D.C. And then she said she had to hurry because she had tennis lessons that afternoon. A bag lady on the streets of D.C. with a fat bank account. Why, why would she be afraid of that? Because... Sometime earlier, her husband had died and she'd lost everything. And she'd tried to make a living as a real estate agent. And she had not been able to make the money. And just before she went under, totally went under and lost everything, she met this wonderful man who was very wealthy. He built golf courses. He flew his plane off his property. Married this man. And every morning wake up fearing and dreading because she might be out of money. And she might end up on the streets of D.C. a bag lady. Why? because of some things that had happened in her past, but by the grace of God, a new love had come into her life, and those things were no longer true, but she felt as though they were true. Those are the kinds of things that can get into our spirit and drive us with such authority and such power, cause us to be so uncomfortable, cause us to do things that we would not ever imagine we would do. And so what I'm trying to say to you is we can be driven by the lust of sin or we can be driven by the memory 
of when we managed in the past and failed. And now we think we're going to fail again. Or we can be driven by the thoughts of how our parents handled it. You know, I was raised in a family where there was just no extra. It was bare-knuckle existence. It was linoleum floors and plastic curtains on the windows. It was a home of utter poverty. I mean, it was a home where you often left the dinner table with your food in your stomach, but you could have eaten double what you got. I mean, grinding poverty. And so there was a time in my life when I said, when I grow up, I'm not going to be poor. I'm going to have what I want. My brother chose one way to go about doing that, and I chose the church business to do it with. Very successful. Didn't have the problem, but thought I had the problem. And then Jesus came and took it all. And the curses began to kick in. And he began to take away everything I had. Now, I need to be clear about this. The curses of God are always given in Scripture for one reason. To turn our hearts back to Jesus. Curses are not given to destroy us. They're given to call us back to his heart. So as I'm driven by those past memories... And God begins to deal with me and he begins to bring into my life situations where I have to confront them and recognize who I am and what I am. What he's really doing is saying, now will you give up the control? Will you give up the authority over these things? Will you put them in my hands and will you allow me to rule your life? I don't know how it's been for you, but I confess to you today that's been a very painful process for me. And I have been driven by my fear and anxiety. I've been driven by my concerns. I've been, my precious wife has referred to me so many times as a cat on a hot tin roof, always moving in nine lives. Gonna make it. I can't live that way anymore. I can't walk that way with integrity before God. Because in every way, as I have submitted and surrendered to the Lord God of heaven, He has broken the power of those things in the past, and He has broken those lusts in my heart, and He's caused that joy overwhelming to come into my soul so that when I wake up, I'm refreshed and joyful in the spirit. Now, I want to show you, you, you may say to me, but pastor, all of that's old covenant. Yes, it is. But I want to take you into the heart of the new covenant. And I want to, I want to walk you through a chapter of Scripture because I don't want you to think that I'm taking out of context what needs to be said. I want you to see it in the whole context of Scripture. Let's go to the book of 1 John, the third chapter. 1 John, the third chapter. He begins by just overwhelmingly confessing how great the love of the Father is for us. He has lavished on us all his love, that we should be called his children. Now, some of you immediately are going to say, Pastor, I don't deserve that. I'm still a sinner. I don't deserve the love of God. I deserve his punishment. Well, how about looking at it from God's perspective? From God's perspective, he's saying, regardless of how you feel, I'm going to pour out all my love on you. 
I'm going to lavish my love on you. For we are the children of God. Now, the reasoning that we're going to walk through in first chapter or in the third chapter of first John is not your normal Americanized Western thought process. Hebrews don't think like English people think. They think in concrete terms abstractly. So follow me. In the third chapter, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, verse 2, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So part of what this whole church has been about. And the reason we're a small company today instead of a very large company is that the Lord God of heaven has lifted up before us the cross. And he said, are you willing to submit your lives to me? Are you willing to give up your life? If you are, I'm going to lavish my love on you. And we've begun to engage in this process of allowing God to under cut and uncover the bitterness of our heart, the fear of our heart, the wickedness of our hearts, and recognize that, that none of us here are the Pharisee. We are all the publican. We have all sinned against God. We have all been unrighteous before him. Every one of us has sinned grossly against the mighty God of heaven. If not in action, then certainly in thought and feeling. And so John is saying, look, if you've honestly begun this process of setting yourself apart for the Lord God of heaven, and you really want to see him when he comes, and you want to be like him when he comes, then you have a work to do of purifying your life, because you want to be pure like he's pure. He goes on. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, we need to stop just a moment. You recognize that 1 John is written by the Apostle John. And the Apostle John is the only one of the apostles who outlines for us the need for and the process for being born again. Remember, that was in the conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. Now he's developing this concept of being born again a little bit more. He's saying that if you've been born again, you don't continue to walk in sin. You simply don't continue to walk in it. You're no longer driven. You're at peace. Now, we could go to many places in Scripture in the New Covenant where this is spoken about. You might just read through this evening Romans, the fifth chapter and the sixth chapter, where it speaks about being justified by faith. And then in the sixth chapter, expands that further and says, and we die and we go into the grave. And we're released from the bondage of sin. So it's clear that if 
if we have not dealt with the sin issue in our heart, there's still a being born again that's going on in our spirits. Now, I'm usually the kind of person who wants to say it's either this way or it's that way. I'm very clear. It's this way or it's that way. And if it's that way, I'm bad and I'm, fail I'm a failure and I can't succeed and I might as well just give up. And that's not reality. The whole message of the gospel brings this process into light where we're purifying ourselves by submitting to Jesus Christ and allowing his blood to have authority over us. And it doesn't happen just all at once. Praise God, in revival it happens all at once. In revival, when revival breaks out and the Spirit of God is poured out, men and women either run from the presence of God or they run into the presence of God and weeping before Him confess all their sins, it's all broken, and they're clean before Him. How many times I've said, oh God, could we just get this over with? Just come and do it in me, set me free. The problem with that is, if he came and just set me free, I would have no maturity and I'd have no strength. And I'd turn around and dive right back into my sin again. And this time I'd be even harder. And it happened many times in revivals of the past where a person was totally delivered, they confessed their sins, they were made right with God, they walked out and they were inhabited by seven more demons. But God has a process that he's working us through. And in this process, as he works us through, he wants us to deal with the sin issues. He doesn't want us to be driven by these things. He wants us to submit these things. Now, listen, he's going to get right to the heart of this. Verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brother, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So now he's taking it a step further. He's saying, if you're being born again, if the process is working rightly, then the selfishness of your heart is being drained away. And the bitterness of your spirit is being removed. And you're treating people differently. You're no longer coming at them like they're enemies. You're no longer carrying the two before of self-righteousness or superiority or pride. Instead, you're recognizing that we're all in this thing together and that none of us are righteous in our own work. But the Lord God of heaven is righteous, and he's lavishing his love on us so we can lavish his love on each other. Now watch. He gets even more clear about this issue. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. You see, everything in us wants to use our brother and our sister for our own pleasure, for our own need, for our own goal. We want to use people to bow down to us. We want to establish our kingdoms, our places, make me important. I mean, social scientists tell us that the first question that any new person has when they enter into a new group is, 
Will I be given a place here? Is there room for me in this congregation? Can I make a place for myself here? Can I make a contribution here? And if I can't make a contribution here, let me go find another church that's more open and accepting of me where I can make a contribution. As though this were about you making a contribution. The contribution was made on the cross. The blood was shed. Now it's up to us to humbly serve one another. I mean, the foolish story, I'm sure you've all heard it, the urban legend about the man who's leaving a city behind because he's so angry at the kind of people they are. He wants to find a new place, a pleasant place to live. And so he stops and inquires about the town they're coming to to determine whether that's a place worthy of his living. And he asks the man along the road, what are the people like up ahead? And the wise man said to him, well, what were the people like where you came from? (laughs) Well, they were mean-spirited. They were small. They were an angry lot. Well, then, sir, you'll probably find those ahead just about the same. I mean... It's not about how we're going to be able to craft and shape and manipulate a place for ourselves where we'll be adored, where where we will be the one lifted up, where we can make a name for ourselves. And how many times in this congregation, I've had men and women come to this congregation and they're right at me, Pastor, I'd like to do this. Pastor, could we do Pastor, could we? And I've learned to just chill back. Let him get through that stage. Some of you recognize that you've gone through that stage. And some of you have been upset with me for not stepping in and saying, oh, yes, your gift is so wonderful. Come on and do this wonderful thing in the church. And everybody's going to love you and you're going to be accepted. And everything's going to be great for you in this wonderful family of God. Get over it. Your place was already crafted by Jesus Christ on the cross. And he's now looking for people who will join together with other brothers and sisters and go through this healing process of purifying our hearts by the blood of Jesus, who will pour out and lavish love on one another in the same way Jesus Christ has poured out his love for us. Now John gets right to the point now. Look at verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us. So, in other words, through this process that we're going through, our hearts are going to rise up and condemn us. And we can submit to the condemning of our hearts. And we can become depressed and discouraged. We can feel worthless. We can just moan and groan. But we don't have to. 
There's another road we can take. Instead of allowing our hearts to condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and knows everything, instead of that, we can begin to step out of our life and begin to love our brother and our sister in action and in truth. Now, I'm glad it says in action and in truth. Because I'm the kind of a person, I know that Kevin and Sultana desperately need a car. Well, I know how to handle that. Let's call the congregation together and let's ask everybody to contribute money. Let's pass the hat. Let's get this car business taken care of. I mean, that's love and action. But it's not love and truth. It's not love and truth. It's love and action, but it's not love and truth. It's not love and truth until the Holy Spirit steps into the whole deal and he begins to instruct us on how we should walk and what we should do. And at that point, it becomes truth. So I'm not speaking here about the flesh saying, okay, let's go do this deal. Most of what's going on in the body of Christ today is simply flesh masquerading as something holy, and it's unholy. So the, the truth is that the Lord God of heaven has put Kevin and Sultana under discipline. And if we were to, in our flesh, step in and say, oh, they're there. You need a car, we'll give you a car. We would block what God is trying to accomplish and he would have to start this process all over again. And Kevin and Sultana, in their independence, would swallow their pride and say, thank you for your wonderful gift, now we're on the road again. We can go, go, go and do what we need to do for God. But God is doing something in the absence of this car. And at some point, God is going to step in, either through one of us or all of us. He's going to step in and going to provide them with a car. I have no question they are going to have a car. The question is, how long will it take God to get their independence broken? How long will it take God to deal with their pride? Now, for some of you, you're thinking, boy, that sounds awful tough, Pastor. It is tough. It's called tough love. God disciplines us as his children. And he does so. That sin will not drive our hearts anymore but we will rest in peace in the Spirit, in Jesus Christ. And we will submit all that we have and all that we do to what He wants to accomplish, and we won't walk in the flesh. We'll walk in the Spirit. Now, the way we set our hearts at peace as our hearts condemn us is not by focusing on our wants and our needs and our desires, but instead focusing on what does Jesus Christ want to accomplish here. So one of the greatest gifts you can give to Kevin and Sultana right now are words of gentle encouragement and love and prayers that they will quickly pass through this phase of the discipline that God has brought into their lives that they could be released quickly from this. Now, I tell you, I've been through this so I can speak of it. I remember when God took our car. And we were homeless. We were with a family, a little bedroom. We had no car. We had to walk three miles to get groceries. And so we would walk the three miles, buy the groceries, and walk back so we could cook them for this family. We couldn't tell them what was going on. They were not Christians. But they'd opened their home to us. 
And so we would walk those three miles together. Boy, was God dealing with our hearts. But then Sandy Kane, God wanted to deal with her heart too. So he had her drive all the way to Baltimore and pick us up twice a week to bring us back to Gaithersburg for a meeting, a prayer meeting. And faithfully, Sandy Kane drove all the way to Baltimore to pick us up. Never once did I hear her say, you know, why don't you guys just give this up? She never said that to us. She never grumbled, never complained. But I know it was not easy. And then God dealt with Kurt. He had to give up one of his cars to loan it to us. And he drove the car to our house. And he got out of the car and he said, the Lord said you were supposed to have this. God was dealing with Kurt's love of his old car. I mean, that was precious to his heart and to his daddy's heart. And God dealt with it. I mean, what I want you to see today is that when God steps in and he begins to deal, he doesn't deal with just you. He deals with everybody around you. And some of you may say, well, that's not fair. Talk to God about it. When you decide to be serious about following Jesus, you will impact all the people around you. Now the question is, will you be born again in the Spirit? And will you, as you impact the people around you, reach out with a heart of love and service to minister to them, or will you listen to the condemning of your conscience and go into despair and discouragement and depression? You have to make that choice. Or will you go back to your sin, that thing which has consumed you and devoured you and driven you? You know, if, if God doesn't handle my life the way I think he ought to handle it, thanks, I'll just take it back and I'll be God for a day. None of you do that, do you? Pass your judgments with your thunderbolts and rule and say how it ought to be and rail against God because it's not the way you want it to be. The Lord is saying, if you want to set your heart at peace with God, you do it by reaching out to your brother and your sister in lavish love at the direction of the Holy Spirit. You get out of your stuff and you treat another as you would desire to be treated. And where this is most obvious is in my home and the way I treat my wife. Because I'm the head of my house. My wife has submitted herself to my headship. And because I am the head of my house, I can say things and do things that will pierce her heart and cause her to be discouraged. Or with gentle love, I can reach out and serve her and lift her burden. I mean, let's be practical. I can sit in my black recliner, my position of ease and comfort, and my wife, who is stressed by the work of ministry, is expected to come and cook me dinner. And I want it on time because I'm a busy man. I've got things to do. I can take that position. And my wife might even put up with it for a while. 
there would come a time of reckoning. Wives have ways of collecting. But if I am born again, and I want to put my heart at rest and deal with the fear that rises up, then I'm going to step out of my chair. And I'm going to say, honey, how can I help you get dinner on? And she'll say to me, Ray, you can set the table. Or you can take the trash out. Or she might even allow me on those rare occasions to cook something. I'd rather she do the cooking. Do you understand what I'm saying? If I offer my heart to my brother and my sister, especially my wife, especially to your husband and to your children, if you offer yourselves to love lavishly, the people you work with, the people you don't like and wish they'd just go away. If you will lavishly offer your love to that person to help lift their burden, not be the master, but be the servant, your heart will grow peaceful before God the fear will evaporate and the condemnation will be gone. It's a cause and effect world. What we do has real consequences. How we act has real results. Everything counts. And so I have to ask you today, have you been driven along by your sin? Have you been driven along by the lust of your heart? Have you been driven along by your desire to be recognized and be important and be somebody? Have you been driven along by having everybody love you and talk to you and express their appreciation for you? Have you been driven by your sin? And has that caused you to become fearful and angry and bitter and discouraged? Using a two-before on your brother instead of speaking with words of kindness and love. Being judgmental and self-righteous. Have you been driven by your sin? Or have you set your heart at peace in the presence of God by the blood of Jesus washing you and cleansing you and then stepping out in acts of kindness and servitude to those around you, lavishly expressing your love? Lord God, I recognize that I'm like that publican. All I can do is come before you and beat my breast and say, Lord God, be, be merciful to me, a sinner. I haven't done it right. I haven't loved right. I haven't walked in the way you would have me walk. And Lord God, my heart condemns me. But Lord, I'm not willing to submit myself to my heart. I choose instead to submit myself to your heart. And I choose this day, Almighty God, to be born again and to enter into that covenant of loving my brother and my sister lavishly. And Lord, I ask that you would set my heart at peace. And I ask that you would set my brother's heart at peace and my sister's heart at peace. I ask, Lord, that when men and women come into the National Prayer Chapel, there would be such an abundance of your Holy Spirit, such a peace and a joy. Lord, not an artificial, fake 
painted on joy. But Lord God, that which rises up out of our souls because we have purified our hearts by the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you, mighty God. I pray in your name. Amen. The National Prayer Chapel holds open communion. I want to explain to you what that means. It means that any man or any woman, any boy, any girl, who desires to no longer be driven by their sin, but chooses to accept the blood of Jesus Christ and to enter into that process of being purified and cleansed, you're welcome to come to the table of the Lord. If your heart is arrogant and hard, then ask the Lord to give you a new heart. If your heart condemns you and tells you you're not worthy to participate at the table of the Lord, it's true, you're not worthy. But Jesus was worthy. This isn't about you being worthy. This is about Jesus being worthy. He's looked at your sin. He's judged it. And he took it to the cross. And he finished it at the cross. And now he wants to finish it in your heart. And he wants to turn that bitter, condemning spirit that flows so quickly from our hearts at our husbands or at our wives. He wants to turn that judgmental, wickedness that rises up in our hearts in pride. He wants to turn that aside and he wants to wash it away and cleanse it. And we are given two things at the communion table. We are given the bread. And do you notice we always take the bread first? Have you ever wondered why? The body of Christ was broken for us, and we eat the body of Christ to gain strength. There could have been just the blood. You say, all I need is to be washed of my sin. No, you also need to be given the strength to walk in the power of the Holy Ghost. So the bread is given to strengthen us and to give us courage. And the grape juice. It's given to us to wash away our sin. Now, some of you today in this place, your hearts are condemning you. You know you've sinned against God. You know you have failed. You know the pride that's in your heart. You know the haughtiness that's in your spirit. You know the judgmental attitude you carry. All of that is washed away by the blood. Will you let him wash it away today? Will you allow the blood of Jesus to come and flow in your spirit and in your heart? And the children, the children need the communion more than the adults. I invite you to let the little children come to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we lift these emblems before you and we ask, Lord God, that you would bless them. And we ask that a wonderful work of your spirit would be done as we take them. We ask, Lord, for the poured out power and presence of your Holy Spirit. Surprise us, Lord God. Let us not leave this place the way we came in, casual or indifferent, angry or hurting. Lord, don't let us leave this place with hearts condemning us, but Lord God, set our hearts right before you. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen.